Welcome to the Revolution Church Podcast. Before we begin, we'd like to remind you that our ministry is supported 100% by listeners like you. To make your 100% tax-deductible donation today, please visit revolutionchurch.com donate. You can also learn more by clicking the donate section on the website. All right, welcome to Revolution, guys. Hi to our online listeners. Uh, as you can probably tell, I am not Jay Baker. My name is Caleb. Jay is out of town uh, performing a wedding, and he asked me to sit in and deliver today's talk. And we're going to be talking about uh, the disciples today and uh, about our, ourselves as well. Um, so I figured we could start kind of at the beginning when Christ first calls the disciples, and kind of talk about that a little bit in uh, Mark... One, and we're going to start with verse 16. So passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I'll make you become fishers of men and women. And he immediately, they immediately left their nets and started following him. Going a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, so another set of brothers here, who were in their boat mending their nets. And immediately he called to them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with his hired servants and followed him. So from the get-go, Christ goes after um, the working class. He goes after fishermen. and as Christ was a, a builder or an artisan, which we usually translate uh, to be a, a carpenter, I'm sure that he spent a good bit of his work uh, time mending ships, mending their, their fishing vessels. And so it's very possible that Christ had a relationship, a friendly relationship with these two sets of brothers that... Um, you know, we often just assume that he was a stranger who just came up to them and they, they just dropped everything and started following him. But it's very possible that they had a relationship beforehand. And, and so maybe there's kind of more of a, a logical progression that led up to them deciding to, to follow him as, as their rabbi. Um, and then, of course, he goes and recruits Levi, or Matthew, as he's uh, more commonly referred to, who is a tax collector. And so, so here's someone who uh, has quite a different occupation from the fishermen. He is resented by the Jewish public, and he's, he's loathed by political zealots. And we know that um, at least two of the other disciples were themselves political zealots. They were kind of extremists uh, in, in their occupied um, town that they lived in. And so Simon and Judas Iscariot are both referred to as zealots, and so there is obviously some tension there uh, between Matthew, Simon, and Judas, um, but, but Christ called a diverse group of people um, from all over the map, and I'm sure that, that Matthew leaving his occupation as a tax collector, you know, he probably took quite a financial hit, becoming, you know, essentially a nomad, um, you know, renouncing his physical possessions. And the disciples are not society's elite. You know, Matthew may have been more well-off, but he was still loathed and despised uh, by 
the vast majority of, of, the, of the people around him, uh, and even the people in his own group, in the disciples. Um, they weren't suddenly enlightened when they started following Christ and, and, and learning from him. Um, they weren't blessed with some sort of Gnostic secret awareness or understanding. They're often clueless and lack understanding um, of the lessons that are lived out and even taught from the mouth of their divinely inspired teacher of Christ. Um, oftentimes, they're very confused uh, by his, his parables and his lessons and just the things that he says. Uh, a common phrase that we find in Scripture is um, something along the lines of, but they did not understand, and yet yet they, they stick with Christ and, and they, they try to retain whatever he tells them, but oftentimes they just don't get it. It just goes over their heads. They're, they're simple people. Um, and even Mark, we know, um, wasn't exactly illiterate, but he was, he was not um, very well educated, at least with, um, with his literacy. Um, in the original, uh, Nos, in the original uh, Koine Greek, um, Mark often switches verb tenses, and uh, you know he he's, has a lot of grammatical errors and things like that. And so that's just another example of uh, just a, a simple person being chosen specifically by Christ to to follow him and and to start building his church, which is made up of, of broken people. We're all broken people. Um. I'd also like to focus particularly on three uh, disciples to kind of illuminate this point. Uh, the modern church popularly kind of paints two of them in particular as like the bad guys or the, the doubters, the unfaithful. Of course, uh, Judas Iscariot is seen as a traitor, and Thomas is seen as a doubter. Doubting Thomas is a phrase that uh, we're all in the church very well familiar with, um, so I guess we're going to start with the modern church's easiest target, the one that is most often painted as an, as an evil person, Judas Iscariot. Um, throughout the stories in the New Testament, there's no prior reference to Judas having ill will or being deceptive. Um, you know, he was there for everything that all the disciples experienced. He was there for the, the Sermon on the Mount. He was there to witness... This, the miracles that we're told stories about in Scripture. Uh, he was a full-fledged disciple. He wasn't, he wasn't like a mole. He wasn't, um, you know, planted there uh, with the intention of, of being a traitor or anything like that. Um, it's a bit of a tangent, but the betrayal of Christ and, and the motivation that Judas had, I, I feel like there's a few different takes on that, a few different possible theories um, of course, the most common view as to why he eventually betrayed Christ, you know, for 30 pieces of silver was that it was uh, financially motivated. Um, but he was well aware of the lack of importance of worldly possessions. You know, he, like I said, they, they lived uh, essentially nomadically, moving from place to place with Christ. Um, and so I'm sure Judas was very well aware and and experienced being provided for without having to worry about um, any financial well-being. 
Um, so I, I, I wonder maybe there were political pressures that led him to his decision to betray Christ. Um, and then on the other side of the coin, and this may be a little bit controversial, but he, he could have been motivated out of faith. He knew that the Son of Man would die and, you know, uh, return in some form. And so it, he could have possibly been attempting to fulfill the prophecy, knowing that Christ had to die and, and, and someone had to do it. And so there could be an element of fidelity, of faith there, um, trying to put things into motion um, by, by uh, being the catalyst of Christ's death. Um, he could have expected the Son of Man to, to thwart an attempt on his life. He could have expected him to show his power and resist um, the Romans who tried to arrest him. And, uh, and maybe Judas hoped that he would then rise to, the, to their uh, version of, of the Messiah, the Jewish-anticipated political Messiah. Um, and, and maybe he hoped that that would be the, the moment when he would reveal himself and, and finally th you know, thwart the Romans. Um, I, I do doubt that finances were a motive. It, you know, it's possible and it's a common view. Um, I also doubt that Judas was a dark, evil, irreparably, um, you know, with a rotten heart, uh, because he saw things panning out as they as they did. He saw that Christ was. Uh, successfully arrested and to be killed, and he immediately saw his error, and he immediately changed his mind, the scripture says, and, and he, he killed himself. He went out, and the next thing that he did uh, in, in one account, and I'll, I'll read those here in a second, there's a couple different versions um, that kind of conflict in scripture, but he, he, it, he did in the end kill himself. So he was obviously just ridden with guilt and regret. Um, there's also uh, the possibility that he was a noble character in this story, like I said, being the catalyst, the, the essential piece of the puzzle for the prophecy to be fulfilled of Christ's death. Um, uh, Peter Rollins actually offers another hypothetical situation that's very interesting um, and there may be a couple little nods, a couple hints in Scripture pointing to this theory, but uh, he does present it just as a hypothetical, as a, a, an exercise, almost a thought experiment. Um, but he proposes that it could have been a prearranged plan between Judas and Jesus for him to turn him in in order to fulfill the prophecy. Um, and in, Peter hypothesizes uh, in his book, The Orthodox Heretic, um, that when Christ said, one of you will betray me, that could have been his signal or his code word for Judas to then get up and leave and carry out their, their plan that they had come up with. Um, like I said, that's, that's just hypothetical and it's a thought experiment, but it's, I think, worth pointing out because he was a disciple. He was a follower of Christ. It was his, Christ was his rabbi. He was faithful to his rabbi. Um, I'm going to look at a couple of different accounts um, from the New Testament talking about uh, what 
Judas did after he betrayed Christ, because like I said, there's, there's a couple inconsistencies, but they both, of course, end up um, the same way with, with Judas taking his life. But in Matthew uh, 27, starting with verse 3 here, Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, so it almost seems like he maybe was not anticipating that Christ would be condemned, because he, he saw Jesus was condemned and then changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. So he knew Christ was innocent. And they said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver in the temple, so he gives back the money, he departed and went and hung himself. And the chief priests took the silver and said, it's not lawful to put them in the treasury since it's blood money. So in that version of the story, Judas uh, gives back the money. He, he throws it at the feet of the ones who had paid him off initially and just turns around and goes and takes his own life, either because maybe things didn't pan out like he thought they would. Maybe maybe the betrayal or his, his act in turning Christ in wasn't... Um, you know, maybe that was part of the plan, but then it just didn't pan out the way that he thought it would possibly. Just speculation. And then um, another version of what happened to Judas Iscariot we see in Acts uh, chapter 1, starting with verse 15. Uh, in those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was all in all about 120. And said, brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled. So the scripture had to be fulfilled. That kind of supports the idea that, uh, that Judas had to betray Christ. The scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas. And there's an Old Testament reference there. Uh, Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us. He, he was one of them. He was one of them. And was allotted his share in the ministry. So he wasn't some evil bad guy from the start. He was a disciple. He was, you know, he was just as much a disciple as, as any of the others. Now this man, Judas, acquired a field with the rest of his reward, the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. Pretty graphic imagery there, but uh, in, in that version, he does not give the money back to the uh, to the Pharisees, but he rather uses it to buy a plot of land with the intention of gruesomely taking his own life there. And so it's not like he, he gets the money and runs off to to Cancun and and just lives his life out, uh, you know, like this, this perfect uh, Ocean's Eleven plan that he had to, to this scheme that he pulled off. He, he used the money to, to off himself. It's like, it's like he went out and bought a shotgun with it. Um, so, yeah, I think it's really, uh, it's, it's potent that Peter himself said that this had to be fulfilled, this had to happen. And... Um, and Judas as a vessel is is almost I don't want to be too defensive of the guy, but I mean it, he, you know he was almost uh, a, a hero. He was stepping up 
kind of he was sacrificing himself, much like Christ sacrificed himself. He was sacrificing himself in order to bring about the fulfillment of, of this prophecy that David talked about. Um, next, I'd like to move on to talking about Thomas, or doubting Thomas, as he's most commonly referred to. Um, and I, I, I really, I, I relate with Thomas a lot. Um, so, in the mainstream view of Thomas, he's always looked down upon, almost as if anyone in the right mind would have no question that their rabbi, their teacher, or in modern terms, their pastor, who died three full days ago had come back to life that it's presented like how could you, how could you even doubt that for the first for first time in history some pastor comes back to life after dying comes back to life 3 days later um and so it, he has he comes back to life in this like hyper physical spiritually hybrid manifestation it's not even that he's he's the old uh, same flesh and blood that he was before but you know he's popping into locked doors, walking through walls, you know. Um, that, to me, that, if someone told me that my pastor died and came back and now he's some sort of superhero, I'm not going to be believing that, um, even if it was, like, foretold. In, in the moment, I would be highly, highly skeptical. I'm, I'd be like, what are you guys smoking? That makes no sense to me at all. Um, so here we're going to take a look at that passage in John. Let me find it here. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and there's a little Carmen throwback. Okay, John 20, 24 through 28. So here we go, 24. Now Thomas, one of the disciples, one of the 12, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came, when he made his grand re-entrance. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands, the marks of the nails in his hands, and place my finger in the marks, and place my hand in his side, which, you know, Christ had been pierced in the side uh, upon his death or after his death, I will never believe unless I, I physically see and touch this. So he's in this state of mind for eight full days. Eight days later, so I'm sure this whole time the other disciples are like, dude, we're telling you, we saw him, we saw him. And Thomas is still standing by his guns. You know, you can't make yourself believe something that doesn't make sense to you. So eight full days later, the disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them this time. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. So I think it's really important to point out that um, Jesus, he accommodates Thomas's request um, because, uh, you know, Jesus was in... Uh, according to what we can infer in some sort of corporeal physical form, you know, he, he eats fish uh, in an earlier passage, you know, he's, he, he eats bread. Um, so, you know, he's there, he has a, at least some sort of physical nature to him. And so I'm sure that getting someone's finger stuck in your hands and your wounds and, and someone's hand stuck in your side is a painful thing. But, but, you know, that, that wouldn't feel too good. But Christ accommodates uh, 
and um, he doesn't say, Thomas, you idiot. Why didn't you, why didn't you believe, you freaking idiot? He, he does what Thomas needs in order to believe. And he, he does it out of love. He does, he does exactly what Thomas needs out of love, and he provides him the proof, exactly the, the proof that he asked for. And, you know, Thomas is a skeptic, and I would not doubt that had any of the other disciples not been present, they probably would have doubted just as much as Thomas, but Thomas just happened to not be there when Christ first showed up. And, yeah, he's a skeptic just like me. I am I'm very much, very much a skeptic. And so I, I relate with Thomas a lot, and I think I think it's a bad rap, honestly. Um, and then the last disciple I'd like to talk about, this is a little bit of a curveball, is Peter. And we're talking about how broken the disciples were, how normal they were, how much like us they were. They And oftentimes they're referred to as saints. Um, I'm not... Maybe we need a new translation for that word saints or a new understanding of it because th- these are people just like us. You know, it's almost like you look in the history books and we idolize George Washington and, and Thomas Jefferson, people like that, but they're people just like us. They're broken people. And so was Peter. Even though he was the, you know, the rock, the foundation of the church, this is a broken dude. This is a broken dude. He's, <laughs> for one thing, he's always wrong. He's always trying to tell Jesus how things are going to go down, and, and Jesus is like, dude, you don't know what you're talking about. Um, he's always overly eager. He overcommits to things oftentimes and then goes back on it. Uh, he, he breaks a promise to Christ in the garden, and he, you know, he says, I won't, let, I won't let that happen. I won't let you be taken. I won't deny you. He's full of fear. After he's told he's, he's, told he's going to be denying that he even knows Christ, he is so fearful in the moment that three times after he'd been warned, he rejects the claim that he knows Jesus at all. Um, and we'll, I guess we'll go ahead and look at that here in uh, Matthew twenty-six thirty. Here we go. All right. And when they had sung a hymn... They went out to the Mount of Olives. Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it's written, I'll strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Uh, and then, oh yeah, and then we'll look at 27.3. Oh, wait a minute. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, 26.30, yeah. Uh-huh. And then he says, Truly I say to you this very night before the rooster crows, you, Peter, will deny me three times. And then Peter says to him, Even if I must die with you. He's being so melodramatic here. Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same thing. And then he turns around, goes back on his word, kind of makes uh, a liar of himself and a, a, a coward and just straight up rejects the claim of knowing Christ. Uh, so he, he's ashamed. He's fearful of humans. Um, and later uh, in Galatians, um, we see that he is rebuked 
for um, for being so scared of humans, essentially of other denominations that think differently. Um, even though he knows that he's in the right, he's ashamed. So I'm going to look at that real quick here. Galatians 2.11. This is Paul talking. But when Cephas, which is uh, another name for Peter, for some reason this dude's got three names, Simon, Peter, and Cephas, but... Uh, Paul likes calling him Cephas for some reason. Maybe it's a cute little nickname he gave him, I don't know. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I, Paul, opposed him face to face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But they came and he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Now this isn't a festival or a party where people get circumcised for fun. This, this is a, a, a faction, a denomination um, that thinks that you have to be circumcised in order to be, to be uh, righteous. So, so he's afraid of these dudes. These, and, and, and he acts like he wasn't eating with the Gentiles. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him. So he's got his followers there. He's got his crew there. He's probably kind of their rabbi. And and he misleads them. Uh, So that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. So he's he's teaching some bad shit. He's teaching them to, um, to be, to have two different ways to act, uh, you know, depending on who you're around, to be um, double-faced, to act one way around a certain group and act another way around another because he's fearful. He's full of fear. But when I saw, continuing on here, 14, when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth, I said to Cephas before all of them, so Paul's bragging a little bit here, I said to him before everyone, he should have been there, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? So he's calling them out here, rightfully so, maybe being a little bit braggy about it, but he's calling them out for, for changing his behavior based on his fear of humans, based on his fear of people, which I'm not condemning the guy because we all do this. Um, we all are scared of other people. We all have a fear of, of humans. Um, and like I said, the idea of saints confuses me sometimes, and I think... It's a way to idolize people and to put them on a pedestal. Um, because, like I said, saints are people. We're all people. We're complex. We're confused. We're mistaken. We're grimy humans. Just like everyone, the saints are grimy, messed up people. And I think that we all personally relate with different disciples at different phases in life, even day-to-day, moment-to-moment. We can relate with the different disciples I know that I have personally me i've I've harbored malicious will uh politically motivated towards people who are who are like me, but I, I don't know them, but I, I make assumptions about them because of their politics, you know being a zealot you know much 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 like Simon and, and Judas were um maybe being kind of politically radical and uh demonizing or labeling people as bad people or bad guys or or others maybe they're just ignorant. Maybe I'm ignorant, but just because of some abstract convictions or perspectives that they have, we, we judge them and we, we, we distance ourselves from them. 
We don't show love. Um, I know that I have often misunderstood deep, relevant, applicable teachings from a divinely inspired source, just like Peter does over and over again. Uh, I am overly confident. I get worked up only to bail and even lie when the rubber meets the road. And I betrayed the ones who I've sworn to adamantly, unconditionally defend. Again, like Peter. Uh, I've betrayed loved ones. I've betrayed teachers. I've been role models. Only to immediately regret it and fall into an unbearable self-loathing. I've, I've been suicidal myself. Um, you know, thank God I've never acted on anything like that. But dealing with depression and, uh, you know, anxiety... I've, I've been to a place to where, upon betraying someone, I, you know, felt so much guilt and felt that I needed penance, much like Judas, who actually did, you know, follow through with killing himself. And I know that I've been manic and have mental shortcomings and intellectual shortcomings, just like Mark. Like I said, Mark was not uh, extremely well-educated. He had a lack of education. Um, I know I have had, uh, you know, jobs... Um, that that are you know I'm a, I'm a working class person, just like the disciples. I'm I was not born with a silver spoon in my mouth. That's for that's for damn sure. Um, I've been judgmental, like I said, political zealot. I've been uh, partisan and hated and um, been hurtful to to people who are partisans on the other side of the fence judging people just because of their political affiliations, which maybe they, don't, they can't help. Maybe they're, like I said, maybe they're just born into it. Maybe they're, there's maybe an, a degree of, of ignorance on both sides. Um, but Christ chose broken people intentionally to build his church. And that's who we are. We're a broken people, and we are the church. We're the body, and we are the church. And I'm going to wrap up with, um, just a couple of lines, lyrics from a song that's it's honestly my, my very favorite song right now. It's by uh, Dan Smith, who goes by the uh, pseudonym Listener. Uh, so you can look him up as Listener. And the song's called Wooden Heart. I'm just going to read uh, a few parts of it because I feel like it really, really illuminates these ideas we've been talking about here. And then we'll wrap things up. So here's a quote from his song, Wooden Heart. find it here. Sorry about that. Okay. This warship is sinking, and I still believe in anchors. Pulling fistfuls of rotten wood from my heart, I still believe in saviors. Because we're all made out of shipwrecks. Every single board washed and bound like crooked teeth on these rocky shores. So come on and let's wash each other with tears of joy and tears of grief. And fold our lives like crashing waves and run up on this beach. Come on and sew us together. We're just some tattered rags stained forever. We only have what we remember. And then I'm going to uh, skip ahead here a little bit. He says, but I am all made out of shipwrecks. Every twisted beam lost and found like you and me scattered out on the sea. So come on, let's wash each other with tears of joy and tears of grief, and fold our lives like crashing waves and run upon the beach. Again, come on and sew us together. We're just some tattered rags stained forever. We only have what we remember. And then lastly here, I know that our church 
is all made out of shipwrecks. From every hole these rocks have claimed, but we pick ourselves up and try and grow better through this change. And he repeats this, this I love this cadence, this beautiful, beautiful kind of uh, hook that he comes back to. Come on, let's wash each other with tears of joy and tears of grief and fold our lives like crashing waves and run up on this beach. Come on and sew us together. We're just some tattered rags stained forever. We only have what we remember. Again, that was Dan Smith, listener, with Wooden Heart. Um, uh, go ahead and um, finish with a prayer, I guess, before I do that. As Jay always says, we'd much rather have you than your money, but we do appreciate donations. Uh, our online listenership is the only reason that we are financially sustainable, and we love you guys. We love you guys so much, and um, we're working on putting out some more content uh, online, uh, kind of supplementary stuff for Revolution fans. Uh, I will also mention that we have a new podcast um, that is called Revolution Afterglow, which is just essentially got a couple room mics set up, and we do um, we have a discussion after every service, and, and so we've recently started recording that. So you can look on iTunes for Revolution Church colon Afterglow. So I'll say a quick prayer here. God, thank you for all the examples that you've given us. Thank you for the example of, of Christ, the example of perfect love. And thank you that that love is sustained and lived out by a broken people, by us, by messed up, screwed up people. And thank you for for giving us the example and the, and the stories and the, to a degree, the, the mythology of the church being built on, on you know, Peter the Rock, who's certainly a, a broken rock, but nonetheless, he's, you know, the example that you've given us. Um, thank you for choosing us, not in a, in, uh, not in a, an elect sort of special way, but thank you just for choosing humanity. And thank you for dying for all of humanity, whether or not we know you. And just help us to love each other and sew each other back together and, and, and wash each other with, with our tears and, and bear through things and not be embarrassed when we screw up because that just illuminates your nature and, and, and you are love. And we thank you for that. Amen.